Well, let's pray and we'll open God's Word. Father, thank you for this day, for our gathering together as your sons in Christ. And it is such a blessing to be in your house with your people. May you inspire the teaching this morning, Father, and throughout the church that your message will be proclaimed in a way that is understandable and comprehensible, Father, that it would be to your glory and that we would learn from it and glean from it your truths in a way that would draw us closer to your son Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, well, we're going to continue in Romans 12. If you've been with us the last three Sundays, you'll know that we've been studying the first two verses, and that's that great passage that many of us have memorized that Paul compels us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which Paul says is our reasonable service of worship. It's the only logical outcome for all of his mercy, for everything he's done for us. The only thing we can do is that we can yield up our bodies as a living sacrifice to him. And that we do that by not allowing ourselves to be conformed to this world. That word conform was saying not don't masquerade around as something you're not. It's like wearing a mask, that we are redeemed, our spirits are redeemed, and we are to outwardly live out and match up with our inward nature that Christ has given us. And by doing that, by living that type of life, that's how we prove what the will of God is, how we testify to Him and His mercies as we live out this righteous life. That is our act of extreme worship that we've been talking about. Now, if you go back in the first 11 chapters of Roman and review all the great doctrines that have been taught there, um, where it talks about justification, sanctification, it talks about election, God's sovereignty. But you could boil all of that down to the fact that God has redeemed a people. It's about a people group that God has redeemed. And praise the Lord, we are part of that people group. That's what it's all about. And as a part of that, being that people group, we now have a purpose in our life as members of this special group. And we are to glorify God for His mercy. We are to serve Him and enjoy Him forever. That's our purpose. And Paul, after he describes how we are to consecrate everything to the Lord, in an act of worship, now he's going to give us some practical instruction on how to live out this worship. He gets more specific in the coming verses. He doesn't just let us come up with our own ideas. He gives us examples and and ways to do that. So we spent the last three weeks looking at two verses, and we're going to really speed up today, and we're going to go through six whole verses in one week. Because this is my last Sunday teaching, and I want to, I just felt that it flowed together. We needed to cover verses 3 through 8. So I'll read Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. 
If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith is service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he shows mercy with cheerfulness. So we see in these verses the call to live out our lives as living sacrifices. Other places, Paul uses the term bondservants to describe how we are now called to serve him and his kingdom. That means it's not our will, but his will is to be done. And it's an amazing thing, but God uses us, his people, to fulfill this. I thought, as I was thinking about this, I thought about the charge in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. I know you're all familiar with that, where it says, Go you therefore into the whole world and preach the gospel. And it talks about teaching them all that I've commanded you. That's a charge that the disciples specifically, but us too, are called to do. It's one of the ways we're called to serve. I thought of Ephesians 8 and 9. We're all familiar with the first two verses, for by grace you have been saved. And it goes on to say, through faith and not of works, lest any man should boast. But what about verse 10? A lot of times people stop. But verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. So if you are a believer, you are called to serve. One of the first things this passage reminds me specifically is that there is a link between true Christianity and involvement in service. Can someone really be a devoted, sacrificed Christian and not be involved in service? Have you ever met somebody that doesn't go to church and said, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian? Most everybody's shaking their head. And that may be true to a certain extent. But if they're not involved with God's people and God's service in his kingdom, it would, at the bare minimum, make me wonder if they were truly saved. Because Paul says that there is work for all of us to do, and we are to be about it because we are God's instruments in this world. How can you be a slave to Christ if you're not involved in any way with serving? So the title of my lesson today, as I told you, I like to give my lessons a title. The title today is Living Out Your Worship. So Paul now is going to give us directions on how to do this, and he does it, I found through this text, three ways. He cautions us, he counsels us, and he charges us. First, as he begins, he cautions us. Look again at verse 3. He says in verse 3, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. What is the caution that he's given us? It's an attitude, isn't it? It's a caution against what? Pride. Do any of us have trouble with pride? I see a few hands going up. Hopefully nobody says no because I'd have to call you out. Because if you have if you have a problem with sin, you have a problem with pride. And we all know that we have a problem with sin because pride is almost at the root of every sin you can think of. You can think of any sin, boil it back down, and it almost always comes back to pride. So the opposite of that, what we really need to be focusing on, what's the opposite of pride? Humility. So Paul is calling us, as he begins this instruction, to have the proper attitude. He cautions us that we need to have the attitude of humility. And I think that's very important. And 
when you think about pride and the problems of pride, it's it's an age-old problem, isn't it? It goes back with the earliest mention in the Bible. When you think of Adam and Eve in Genesis, you think of pride in the fall. But it even goes beyond that. And you look in Isaiah 14, 13, it's talking about Satan. And it says, you said in your heart, I will send to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. That was the heart of Satan way back before even creation. And God judged him for it. But isn't that really what all pride is, setting ourselves on the throne of God? When we say, I don't want to do it that way, God's way, or we do something and we, we alleviate God, we take him out of the equation, that, you know, we're, we're saying we don't need him. We, you know, are dependent on ourselves. We don't need God. That's pride. And what does God say about pride? I looked up a few verses just to get the context. A couple in Proverbs. Proverbs 8.13 is one I looked up. Proverbs 8.13, he uses some pretty strong words. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Some versions say I despise. Proverbs 16.5 is another place that tells you how God thinks about prides. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. There's no stronger words in the Bible, really, for the words that describe pride. Hate, despise, abomination. Those are very strong words. And that's how God feels about it. On the flip side of that, how does God feel about humility? I thought of James 4, 6. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Isaiah 66, 2. To this one I will look. To him is humble and contrite of spirit and trembles at my word. God is looking for men and women who have a contrite heart, a humble spirit. He is, despises, hates, abomination of those who have pride. So it's a very important subject in Scripture. This struggle between pride and humility is an important one. We know that by God's words. And Paul knows that this is important because when you look at his words in verse 3, he doesn't just say some of you. He says, I say to everyone among you, everyone, no exceptions. There's nobody that's got it right. Every one of you, I'm giving you this caution. So if we have to have humility, how would you in a brief sentence describe it? What would your definition of humility be? Anybody heard a good definition of humility? Yes, that's actually a scripture. <laughs> Preferring others before themselves, John. Yes. Having the mind of Christ. Anybody else? Servant. Servant. Seeing the holiness of God. Holiness of God, holiness of God and sinfulness of death. You read some of the same books I read. C.J. Mahaney in his book on humility actually uses that description. He said, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in the light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And he goes on to to write about how you have to have both those views to have a proper perspective of humility. We have to have an honest awareness of how holy, how perfect, how sinless God is, how he can't be in the presence at all of sin, and then how totally depraved we really are. Even those that are redeemed, which most of us are, 
we still have that sinful nature in our flesh that we, we struggle with. And you can't think too highly of yourself if you're comparing yourself to the holiness of God. We have a tendency to compare ourselves to other people. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I'm not as bad as that person. But really, we should be the only person we should be comparing ourselves to is Christ. And that puts things into perspective. So Paul cautions us where the battle is fought. When you look at verse 3, there's a phrase that he uses three times, and that is to think. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. Paul knows that the battle is in our minds. That's where we go wrong. It's fault in the mind. And we have to realize that it's in our thinking. And he tells us to have sound Judgment In the Greek, that means soberly, to think soberly. You know, when you're intoxicated, you don't think clearly. He's saying don't be like that. Think soberly. Have the proper way of thinking. We're not to overrate ourselves or our abilities. Galatians 6.3 came to mind. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Kind of goes against the American culture of self-esteem, doesn't it? When I thought about, you know, if you went into a secular bookstore and looked at all the books on the different self-help type books, you don't really find much on humility, having humility. You might find one or two Christian books on humility, but you find scores and scores of books on self-esteem and how to feel good about yourself and how to have confidence and to win and influence people. Those are the type of things the world thinks about. But we are called to be humble and humility. Now, as I thought about this, I couldn't help but think of the disciples, you know, because they were with Jesus more than than most. And they spent a lot of time with him. And yet they still struggled with this issue. Turn over to Matthew 18. We'll look at a couple of counts just to kind of emphasize this need for humility. Matthew 18 the first four verses, evidently the disciples were having a conversation or argument amongst themselves, and then they decided to go to Jesus. And that verse 1 says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Evidently, they were still under the impression that he was going to usher in this physical kingdom, and they wanted to know who's going to be the first star general or whatever, who's going to be your right-hand man. And that's what they, they came to him and asked him, who's going to be the greatest? And his answer, and he called a child to himself and set him before him and said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus gave them an answer. You've got to be like a child. That was not what they were expecting. What does it mean when it says that we to, to be the kind of Christian that God wants us to be, that we have to be like a child? Other places we're commended to not, you know, be in, as a child. I was a child. I acted like a child. But when I was a man, I put away childish things. So what does it mean when he says be humble like a child? Trusting spirit. Have a trusting spirit. Yes. Obedient. Dependent. Those are all good answers. I think dependence, you know, when you think about a child, they come into this world, especially, and I think the words used when it talks about bringing a child to him, 
the word that was used, there was different words in Greek for children, and the word that was used was for a very small child. So it was like an infant or a toddler that he ended up, you know, having come over and hold on his lap. And he said, you've got to be humble as one of these. You've got to become like a child. And I think, I think that his intent was to be, you know, you have to trust like a child. They trust their mom and daddy for everything. They, they would just jump off the car top, you know, and just land on the ground if you weren't there to catch them because they just know you're going to take care of them. They're dependent for everything, food, changing diapers, gift feeding them, nourishment, everything that there is a child is dependent upon. And he wants us to be dependent on him like that. Yes. No questioning. Just believe me because I am God. Believe me because I'm your dad. Kids think their parents usually are the greatest things, you know. My little granddaughter was at our house the other day, and something was broke. I don't even remember what it was, Terry. DVD player was broke, and she, she needed to get a DVD out of it. And she told Terry, to, you know, get Papa to fix that. If he can't do it, my daddy can. <laughs> so he, he, she knew. That's, that's trust. Their daddies are the greatest. Mark 10.35 is another example. Mark 10.35 this is an account about James and John. shows that they still struggled with pride. Starting in verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servants. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. And for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus, you know, transformed their thinking. Whoever wants to be the greatest must be the least. And he transformed their thinking on what servitude and humility was all about. I was brought to mind as I was reading this something that my children did when they were little. I'm not used to having a child in here, but this was not this child. This wasn't Angie. But they were playing a game with the neighbors. We lived on a little cul-de-sac out in the country that we had built houses with friends from church. And... All the kids in the neighborhood were over and they were playing a game. And Terry was relaying this to me because I was at work. But the, the kids were getting ready to play a game. And our oldest daughter, she heard her in there. Kind of, she was the leader. She was kind of organizing the game. And she said, now, Benjamin, you go first. And Angie, you go second. And Jordan, you go third. And I'll go last. And my wife's thinking, wow, that's nice of her. And then she says, but the Bible says the first shall be last and the last shall be first. So I'll go first and you go second and you go third and you go last. Now, so we also have to have the right sincerity of mind as we 
put on this display of humility and modestness. It's not just an act. It has to be sincere and, and be from the heart. So we know pride's a problem, but why is it important to mention here in our text when we are getting ready to talk about spiritual gifts? Well, do you remember what was going on in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? That letter was written a few years before this letter. So Paul probably had this on his mind as he begins to teach on this subject. And if you remember what was going on in Corinthians, in the Corinth, the believers there were exercising the sign gifts. And they were, especially the speaking in tongues, was a big issue. And they wanted, you know, to just have these big powerful display of these signs. And they, they didn't, you know, they were neglecting other spiritual gifts and they were fighting over you know popularity and power over these gifts and paul knowing this you know it was an issue of pride and i i thought to myself well we don't really have that problem in the church today but do we still have pride problems in the church when it comes to respect to ministry and people's different people serving and leaders and you start thinking about the intricate relationships that go on and within ministry and i think it's very relevant today that we still have to deal with this as we talk about our gifting and our servicing. So we see that Paul begins this whole practical talk about how we are to start serving and living out our worship by giving us caution about our attitude. Next, in verses 4 and 5, he counsels us. Let's read verses 4 and 5 again, chapter back to Romans 12. Verse 4 and 5, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So he cautions us against pride, and now he gives us some counsel. And he, he says this counsel is that we are to have unity. We are to have mutual consideration for one another. We don't just belong to Christ. We now belong to each other. And Paul uses the illustration of the body to make this point. We are one body. He uses this analogy several times in Scripture, but I think the best one is in that chapter in 1 Corinthians 12, and I think we should read that. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he uses a very lengthy little section to use this analogy of the body, and it's a great analogy. Let's look at verses 20 through 27 of 1 Corinthians 12. Paul says, but now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable are those we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. I think that's a great example that shows how we are to be dependent on one another. We need each other. Anybody in here major in biology and do a lot of study on the on the body? Yeah, I see one back there. It's an amazing thing how the body, how many 
cells there are, how many millions of different cells. When you, you know, just take the inner, the ear and or the eye, just one organ, and, and study it, and how many different things go into making it work. One thing's not working properly, then we don't hear, we don't see. But it all functions together for the purpose of the body. And Paul is saying that's what the church is like. The body, the church, is a living organism like the body. It's made up with many different members. You have to be unified, but we're very diverse. And I thought about, you know, after reading that First Corinthians chapter about how one part of the body thought about stubbed my toe before. And you think your little toe is just one little toe. you got nine more, but you can barely walk if you hurt it bad enough. If you had an ear infection that gets into your inner ear and it totally makes you lose your balance. When he talks about one part being more important than the other, than ones we think are important like our legs and arms, we can live without, right? But we can't live without some of our inner organs. You, you would die. Paul uses those illustrations to really point home the fact that we are a diverse body. Everybody's uniquely made, very different, and we are a combined unit. We can live, function, Christ can function, the church is going to function if one part of the body is not doing its job. It's going to go on. But it's not going to go on the way that God wants it to. He wants each of us to be using our unique gifts and our service and to be acting out that which we were called to be. And I think it's, Paul's really making that analogy as strong as he can that we need to be aware of this and not go at it alone, that we are a unit. I have a tendency to go at it alone. I am I don't have to be around a lot of people to function. Some people have to be around a lot of people, but I don't have to be. My work, I do remodeling and my ideal situation is working in a unoccupied house, no homeowners there, no other employees, just turn my Christian radio on and do my thing. I come and go as I want. That's that's perfect for me. And I'm perfectly content. Even doing the hard, heavy lifting or whatever, I'd rather do it by myself than have to deal with anybody or any people. That's not what God says the church is about. Um, we are called to work together as a unit. Why is it easier to go at it alone? Wouldn't it be easier to have lots of people? And, you know, on TV they build these houses in a few days when they bring all these people in. Wouldn't it be easier to do that? Why do you feel like I would rather not deal with people? Somebody analyze me. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's it. You got it. Relationships are hard work, aren't they? Dealing with people can be hard work. Even Christians, even ones that are redeemed and spirit-filled, it's sometimes difficult because relationships can be difficult. But Paul, that's why Paul is preaching this diversity but unity. Because to function correctly, we need to learn to work with people. And I think that's it. So we have to have that proper attitude. He gives us some counsel on being united. Different gifts, but we have to be united in spirit. He cautions us, he gives us some counsel, and then he gives us a charge. Starting in verse 6, he says, he gives us the charge. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. Exercise them accordingly. 
The key word I want to emphasize on is exercise them. Now, he gives us all gifts, right? But do we always use them? He's telling us that we have to exercise them. Now we, he, gives, he then becomes giving us a list of spiritual gifts. And I know we could spend a lot of weeks and time on this subject, but we don't really have time to delve into it really far. But let's just read them and then we'll talk about them. Since we have gifts that differ according to grace given to us, each of us exercise them, and then he gives lists them. If prophecy according to the proportion of his face, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And then he goes on to give a lot more instruction, but we'll stop there. So as you think about spiritual gifts in the Bible, you'll find three different types listed. Some people break them into two. Some commentators break them into three. I like the idea that there are three types of spiritual gifts. The sign gifts, the speaking gifts, and the gifts of service. There are at least four different places where they are prominently listed. 1 Corinthians 12, here in Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. I think many times when we think of spiritual gifts, we immediately think of the sign gifts, the speaking in tongues and the healings and the miracles. I think that's because we tend to have this desire for the extravagant, and that's what we think about in 1 Corinthians 12 is where those are mentioned. But as I said earlier, 1 Corinthians was written in 54 A.D. Romans was written about four years after that, and then the passage in Ephesians and Peter even came further on down the line. So you see that the gifts, the sign gifts, are only listed in one of those four places, in the, the earliest one. A lot of the commentators believe that the reason they're not mentioned after that was because they were even beginning at that point in time to not exist, that they were, the people were dying off and, and not having those gifts anymore. We're not going to get into the intricate details of talking about that because they're not even mentioned in the text that we are looking at. The sign gifts are not even mentioned. Most commentators believe that the sign gifts were for a designated, a specific point in time to help authenticate the apostles and the disciples' ministry, that they were used to authenticate. And that was no longer needed after the written word was put into place and those sign gifts died away with the apostles and the disciples. Like I said, I'm not going to get into that because they're not even mentioned in our text. We're going to stick to our text in Romans 12. There's actually, though, a a text in Hebrews that I read that kind of, I didn't just come up with that as a hypothesis. Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4 kind of give us a, a vision of what those sign gifts were for. Hebrews 2 says in verse 3, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. That's a scripture that really says that that's what those gifts were used for, was to testify and to authenticate the teaching ministry of the early disciples and apostles. So Paul's focus is on exercising our gifts, using them. We all have them. They're all different. We have them in different measures. But if we don't use them, then they're really no good, right? Right. 
Paul doesn't really say that exactly, but he says exercise them. If you have a baby grand piano in your living room or a beautiful violin, it's no good if it's just laying on the floor. It needs somebody to pick it up and play it or to jump on that piano and play it. And that's what he's saying. Exercise your gifts. Bible scholars do not agree on all of the different lists. They don't have a compiled list. They don't agree on the number of spiritual gifts. Because they're listed in different places under different names, there's a lot of disagreement on how many there are. And I know some of the commentators just said, I don't think that we were intended to have a list, but more or less a category of gifts. And Because there are, people all assume them in different ways, different measures, You may have several different gifts compiled. One person may seem like they just have this one main gift. You may have several different gifts, but you don't exercise them in great proportions as somebody else might. So it's this compilation of different gifts and different measures that molds us into the unique person that God wants us to be and the unique service that God has for us. So here's a question. What's the difference between talents and gifts, spiritual gifts? We all know people that have great musical talent. Is that a spiritual gift? You can use your talent for the Lord, or you can use it for the world. Both people, unsaved worldly people, have many talents, but does the unsaved worldly person have a spiritual gift? No. Spiritual gifts are given directly from God by the Holy Spirit for specific purposes to work within the body of Christ for the mutual benefit of the church. So talents are abilities that's been given to us by God. We can choose to use them for the world or for the church. But spiritual gifts are only given upon salvation by the Holy Spirit. And they are specifically given to us for the purpose of building up the church. And we'll look at the ones that Paul mentions in this text. The first one he mentions is prophecy. What do you think of when you think of prophecy? What's the first thing that comes to mind? And be honest. Prophecy. Revelation. Future events. End times. That's technically what the word has come to mean. But in the original, it meant speaking forth truth. Basically, we're referring to speaking forth the truth. We've used it to mean future events. But that's not really the literal meaning of the word. If you go and look at the context of biblical, how the word was used, it was used foretelling future events. In 1 Corinthians 12, where it talks about the list, it lists prophecy as one of the sign gifts of foretelling the future. But it's also used, and it's used in this text, as speaking forth truth boldly. And so it's not necessarily always prophetic in nature. It means just speaking forth the truth. And there's lots of examples, if we had the time, that we could go and look at in the Bible where it talks about someone standing up and prophesying before the people about the Lord, but it had nothing to do with prophetic. So that's the first gift. The second gift is service, and it's a general term for ministry. It comes from the same Greek word that we get our word deacon and deaconessness. It's not talking about the office of deacon or deaconess, but just in general, and that mean, word just plain means serve, serve, serve others, servant. That's where we get our word deacon and deaconess. It's similar to the gift of helps that's listed in 1 Corinthians 12:28, And helps basically just means serve and lift up and bear one another's burdens. So those are similar. Then we come to the, the third one is teaching. 
Again, straightforward, it, meant, it just meant interpret and present God's truth understandably. As I started trying to look at the word prophesy or prophecy and teaching, I had to stop and ask myself, what's the difference between teaching and prophesying in the sense of not foretelling the future but just speaking forth the word of God versus teaching God's word? Because it's two specific words, two specific spiritual gifts. So I had to stop and spend some time trying to explore the difference. And I read all the different commentators' views on that. And what I came to to really grab a hold of was the one that John MacArthur used in his commentary. And he said that it was a distinction between the ability to proclaim and the ability to give systematic regular instruction. And even that was confusing at first. But as I thought about it, have you ever had a preacher that you heard that could boldly stand up in the pulpit and maybe give an evangelistic, bold proclamation of the word, but he is a horrible teacher? He can't systematically organize his thoughts. He can't lead people down a certain road and get them to an end result. He might be able to speak boldly on one area of the Bible, but he doesn't have the ability, like our pastor, to go through chapter verse by verse all the way through the bible there is a difference between there are preachers with one gift or the other it would be great for the preacher to have both gifts but sometimes they don't have both sometimes they're not as good about teaching so there was some some difference between that the next one he talks about is exhortation which literally means calling one to one side the root word is close to the same word used for the holy spirit advocate comforter Helper, it carries the idea of encouraging, warning, strengthening, comforting. I was thinking in the Bible about who I thought might have this gift, trying to look for examples. Who comes to mind when you hear the word encouragement? Barnabas. Barnabas. You know, you know the story and where Barnabas and Paul were going on a missionary journey and he wanted to take John Mark with him. And Paul said, no, I don't want to take John Mark. He you know, deserted me before, and he went on. You know, Barnabas ended up taking him and John Mark and going their separate ways. They actually had a pretty good disagreement. Later on, we learn in the Bible that Paul and John Mark were back working together again, and that was probably all because of the help Barnabas had and encouraging him and restoring him and lifting him up. And there are several other places in Scripture where Barnabas is shown to have that gift of encouragement. But encouragement is just part of exhortation. The other parts are warning, strengthening, comforting. So there's various parts of exhortation. Um, You think about someone that's good about compelling you to to join alongside of them in work and encouraging you to come work with them, not just lifting you up, but maybe warning you about something. There's all different exhortation can be carried out in many different ways. I know there's people in this room that I know have that gift. I won't embarrass anybody by saying it, but there are people here I know that have that gift. He goes on then to talk about giving. Persons with this gift give sacrificially. When we think of giving, first thing that comes to mind is what? Money, right? It's not only what this is talking about. The literal word means to give of oneself sacrificially. That can mean money, but it can mean giving of your time, giving of your belongings, giving a a lot of different ways versus just monetarily. Some of what we 
reason we carry that is because of this word liberally. One who gives liberally. We think of liberally as meaning giving a lot, being very generous. But the actual word liberal, it comes from the word hablotes, which carries the idea of heartfelt, untainted by ulterior motives. It's actually more of a heart attitude than it is how much you give. It would be the opposite of the example in Scripture where they blew the trumpets when someone was given a lot of money or whatever. It would carry the opposite of that type of thinking. The next one that he talks about is leadership. The one who leads. Leadership. This word is never used in the Bible for government rulers, but is used of headship within the family and the church. I was telling Doug and Rita, but we were talking before class, and I was talking how some of the things we did as immature Christians. And one of the things I did as an immature Christian was the way I viewed headship of the family. I thought it meant making all the decisions and barking orders. And as a young Christian, I, my wife was very patient with me. But it's talking about the actual word. Is, it's close to the words that's used in the gift administration in First Corinthians that means to steer, to guide. The leader is one who's called to steer the ship, to guide the family, to steer the ministry, the church, to guide it, give it direction. And, of course, we know that Jesus is our best example of that, and he, he sets this example for us by serving, right? The great leader is a great servant, not one who stands back and barks orders. It's certainly a gift needed for church leaders, elders, and deacons, but it's also needed for all the other ministries that go along with the church. Showing mercy is the next one. Here's another question. What's the difference between sympathy and mercy? You ever thought about that? They sound real similar, don't they? If I have sympathy for someone, I feel sorry for them, I have compassion on them. Mercy, mercy on the other hand, is doing something. It, you're right. It, it becomes the active part of sympathy. Mercy, someone has the gift of mercy. He has the means and the will to do something about that feeling. I had a neighbor named Bobby Hall that had this gift. He was one of the guys that built with us on this few acres, and we never knew when we came home who might be on his front porch. <laughs> there would be bags or suitcases or whatever where he would just bring somebody home with him. And I always felt kind of sorry for his wife because she didn't know who was going to be at dinner at their house that, that, that evening or whether they were going to have extra people sleeping in the house or whatever. But he could not physically help himself. He had the gift it says by the proportion of your faith he had that gift so much of that that he just could not help pass by anybody that needed help examples of people that have the gift of mercy would people that do hospital visitation nursing home ministry jail ministry helping the homeless the poor the handicapped these are all examples of people with the gift of mercy and if we had time, we could go on to the other places in Scripture and we could look at all the different gifts that we have. But I think the important thing that we need to remember is that we all have gifts and we all should be using them. Why do you think that some people don't serve? I mean, you know the statistics. You know, 20% of the people of a church do all the work. That's pretty true in most churches. I'm not sure what lakesides would be. It's pretty true in most churches. Why do you suppose that 
that is, that most people are not fulfilling or serving. Anybody have any ideas? Self-centeredness. I think you're partially, partially right. I think a lot of that is true, that sometimes we... I think there's a various reasons. I think some of it would be self-centered. We don't have time. We're so busy with work and our kids and on all that. But I think sometimes we just don't know what it is we are to do. You know, I don't know. I don't feel like what my gift is. I'm not sure where I should be serving. So how do we get over that? I think some practical ways to get over that is to just start looking for ways to serve. One of the gifts is exhortation, calling alongside. One of the things I think it's important to do, if you are involved in a ministry and you see other people that you know might be good at something, call alongside that person to come help you. Go with me to do this. You know, go with me to Wood Valley. Go with me and do this ministry. And it call alongside some other people and help Bring them along and they may find out, oh, wow, I enjoy this. This is my gift, you know, but I think we have to be encouraging one another to do this. You know, the whole reason I got into the counseling ministry was because Steve Trom basically said to me, I think you'd be good at this. And he asked me to come and join him and sit in on a, a class with him. And that started me down the road of the counseling ministry. So we need, as brothers and sisters, to exercise the ones that have that exercise of exhortation, calling along one side. We need to be calling along each other and drawing them in so that more and more people get involved and find their ministry. So it's an important topic, but I think, you know, having the proper attitude, you know, we're not all, Paul says, we're not all teachers. Uh, we're not all going to have the limelight, but he says it's the most important things are sometimes the ones that you don't see. We can live without our legs. We can live without our arms. Can we live without our heart or our lungs, things that are inside that nobody sees? Sometimes we need to make that the view of the church. It's easy to give praise and honor to the people doing the teaching and the more visible signs, but the people behind the scenes, I mean, I feel for the people that are in the children's ministry and the nursery workers it's hard this is a whole lot easier than keeping the one-year-olds i'm telling you i'm serious i go home after the nursery and i'm worn out so the people that are leading amy palmer that's leading the children's ministry has a huge undertaking to make sure all the you know the rooms are staffed and in the summertime people aren't going on vacation and people are sick and i'll put a plug in right now if you think you might enjoy serving that ministry give her a call they need help awana workers need help it's a wonderful ministry but needs help almost every ministry within the church can use help and we don't want to be sitting on the sidelines not exercising our gifts therefore not enabling the body to be the whole body actively and productive as it needs to be and paul makes this case very strongly so Paul says we are part of this redeemed group of people. We worship God. Why? Because of his mercy. And we live out his mercy by living this life of sacrificial service that we enjoy. It's not a labor of, I hate doing this. I don't want to get up and don't do this this morning. It's something that we love to do. That's one of the ways you know if you have the gift is you enjoy doing it. I know that I have the gift of teaching because I thoroughly enjoy 
teaching. I don't get to do it all the time, which makes it easier. But I thoroughly enjoy doing it. I know that that's something that God wants me to do. And the hours that I put in are for me. It's, I mean, I'm standing in front of you, but I know I get more out of it than anybody else does because I spent hours preparing. So I know I am the better because of it. But I, I love doing it. I know that's one of the reasons I know I have the gift. So Paul says, have the right attitude. Be humble. Do not be proud. He gives us his advice, unity, be, we're all diversified, but we're all one body. We're all the same people group, and we need to be working towards the function of serving our holy God because it's an amazing thing. We are carrying out the God's plan for the universe. We, as his people, are the ones carrying out his plan for the universe. That's an amazing thing. So, that said, I'll end my time with you on Romans. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for this time together. Father, you are an amazing God, and you have instituted an amazing salvation in the way you have redeemed your people for yourself, and then you used the same people to carry out your work. Father, may we be partakers in that, fully participating in the way that you would have us do. Father, may we not shrink from our obligations. May we look for ways to serve you, Father. May we enjoy you as we do it knowing that um, this life is so temporary and that we are preparing it even as we carry on this this world we are being prepared for eternity and we look forward to worship you and serving you forever it's in your name that we pray amen